Well, I want to introduce for you this morning a series that we're going to be doing throughout um, this the, um, throughout the season of Lent. And the series is titled Difficult Passages from the Book of Numbers. <laughs> so in other words, the Book of Numbers. <laughs> uh, actually, this is, a, this is an appropriate series for two reasons. Number one, um, the Book of Numbers is all about Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And about the, the unfaithfulness that happens and the way that the Lord is working on them and sanctifying them as a community... And uh, Lent is a time where we, where we remember Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. We remember, as we read in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus' 40 days in the desert where he was fasting. And so we enter that. But it's also appropriate because Lent is a time for being stretched. And, uh, and I think that the book of Numbers will stretch us as we do this series. In general, I think it's difficult for us, if we're honest, even for those of us who have a very high view of Scripture, it's difficult for us to engage the Old Testament as God's Word. Especially these books. Maybe, maybe the Psalms, maybe we have our favorite passage in Proverbs, maybe we love the suffering servant in Isaiah. But it's difficult to look back at the book of Numbers and be like, this is God's Word. <laughs> but I think the bigger disconnect in our minds is, is this God? Is this God of the Old Testament? Is Yahweh? The same God we find in the face of Jesus Christ? Is this the same as the Father of Jesus Christ? There's this disconnect. In fact, the author, um, Philip Yancey, wrote a book some years back uh, about the Old Testament, calling it The Bible Jesus Read. And that was his little kind of gentle nudge to evangelical Christians to say, by the way, Jesus viewed all this stuff as authoritative scripture, so, so should we. This isn't a new issue, actually. In the second century, there was a very famous heretic that drew a lot of followers to himself named Marcion. And he drew a lot of people to himself saying that there's a difference between the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and this Old Testament God that we find. But this position was emphatically rejected as being in discontinuity with Orthodox Christianity. That Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, it was planned, and all this happened in accordance with Scripture. And without the Old Testament, so much of this will never make sense. Amen. Now, I'm grateful, and I don't know how many of you know this, some of you might not be aware, that we actually have a world-class <laughs> Old Testament scholar in this community. <laughs> Sarah Hall um, uh, received her, her PhD from Cambridge University um, in, in the Old Testament, and uh, especially grateful to have her as part of this congregation as we go through the book of Numbers. She's actually going to start off our series and, uh, and just kind of, kind of um, not, not dig directly into the book of Numbers, but just talk more about this general issue of, of the reasons why we have a, have a difficult time with the old, viewing the Old Testament as Christian scripture and kind of help us to wrestle with that a little bit. Another cool thing is that um, I've asked her if she's agreed to, um, after every service during Lent, as we're doing this number series, um, both she and the preacher, which today will just be her, um, uh, are going to make themselves available for 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A. And that'll happen five minutes after the ser uh, service is complete. Um, we'll stand over um, just in front of the front row of pews, 
just to ask questions and to continue to wrestle with it together. So if you feel that sense of inner compulsion, like, I'm not done yet, or that thing that you said kind of triggered this in my mind, then I invite you to come over there. Sarah, if you could come up here, and um, if I could ask your brother Peter to pray for you before you bring us the word this morning. Would you come right now by our Holy Spirit? Fill all of us, particularly Sarah. May she be a mouthpiece for you. Um, may we see the con continuity of your story throughout generations, starting with the book, starting with Abraham, but um, especially now in this book of Numbers. Thank you, Lord. Bless her in Jesus' name. Alright, if you were to take a door-to-door -door poll in your neighborhood, or maybe on campus downtown, and you ask the question, who was the Old Testament written for, what kind of answers do you think you would get? Just throw, throw out ideas. Who was the Old Testament written for? Okay, the Jewish community, the people of Israel, something like that. That's, that's what we generally, as a culture, tend to think. Um, and it was, right? It was first written for the people of Israel, for God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And Moses says as much, because he says to the people of Israel, um, take these words to heart, this is in Deuteronomy, all the words of this law, for these words are not an idle word to you. Indeed, this word is your life. Okay? So it was for them. It wasn't just, you know, frivolous, secondhand. It was their life. And it was, indeed, written for the people of Israel. But that's not all. As we heard in the letter to um, Corinthians this morning that Paul wrote, he says this remarkable thing about the Old Testament and who it was written for. So would you, in your leaflet, turn to the reading that we had from 1 Corinthians 10 this morning, 9 and 10? As you're flipping, I just want to remind you that this passage comes right after the passage that we heard about a couple weeks ago. John <coughs> preached about this passage where Paul talks about becoming all things to all people so that some might be saved by this good news. He says, to, remember this? He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became the weak. So that um, by all means, I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in his blessing. Okay? And then verse 24 is the very next verse. And he goes on to talk about his training, training like an athlete. So in the context here, he's talking about strict training for the goal of sharing in the blessings of the gospel with the people he's serving. Okay? It's training not to become a super, super spiritual Christian. He's not training to like be as holy as he can possibly be for his own sake. Um, or to just be a really healthy, kind of well-rounded disciple. Right? He's training out of love for the good of other people. And then, as a sort of kick in the pants to these Corinthians, to kind of light a fire under them for this kind of serious, gospel-loving training, um, this kind of discipline, he turns to the Old Testament, to the experience specifically of the people of Israel as they were wandering in the desert, between their rescue from Egypt and their time of coming into the Promised Land. So this is a great passage for Lent, right? It's about training, it's about being in the wilderness, but look what Paul says here. We learn this amazing thing about the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. 
Paul says this, these things, and he's talking about their experience in the wilderness, happened as examples for us so that we might not desire evil things as they did. What? This is why they happened as examples for us? That's a big claim. So what things is he talking about here? He goes on to list the adultery, the, excuse me, the idolatry, adultery, um, that they um, practice with the golden calf. He refers to Israel's immorality with the Moabite women. He talks about the way they tested God when they grumbled about food and water. All these experiences that we'll read about in the book of Numbers, Paul says, look at verse 11 here. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And the end of the ages here, as as Paul always is using this term, is the time of the Messiah. So Paul goes so far as to say that the Old Testament was written for the disciples of Jesus. It was written for those who are following the Messiah, those on whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament, says Paul, was written down for us. So, if it's really for us, why does it freak us out a little bit? Why do we avoid it? What is it about the Old Testament that makes us feel like it isn't really written for us? Why is that how we often feel when we come to the Old Testament? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, it's a lot longer than the New Testament, right? It's complicated. It involves a whole number of literary genres. that were, And it was, it's a document that was written over a long period of time, a much longer period of time than the New Testament. So it requires a lot more background understanding of a lot more ancient Near Eastern empires and culture and a longer period of history. And that is just hard. It's off-putting. But there's a lot, also a lot more distance between our world and the world of the Old Testament, kind of culturally and historically. So think about it. Here's a little poll. Which war would you say that you know more about? World War II or the War of the Roses in England? How many of you feel like you know a little more about World War II? Okay, anybody know more about World of the Roses? Okay, no English historians among us. Okay, here's what I'm thinking, okay? Both of them in the past, right? They're both in the past. They're both, of, both of them kind of have a lot of cultural distance from the world that we live in now. Um, but there's more difference between us in 16th century England than there is between us and 20th century America and Europe, right? Not only are we like swimming in a lot more information about World War II, right? Like books and documentaries and interviews, testimonies. Um, but we sort of implicitly understand the world of like airplanes and telephones and newspapers better than we understand 16th century England, okay? I would say similarly, understanding the Old Testament takes just a little more work. We tend to know less about second century millennia, second millennium Mesopotamia than we do about the Roman Empire. I have a friend who always says, I mean, think about it. When's the last time you heard an ethnic joke about the Dervishites, right? <laughs> Anytime recently. Or when's the last time you went into Barnes & Noble and found a book on, like, interpreting sheep entrails as omens, right? There's, we're in a totally different world. We live in a very different culture. And so understanding, reading the Old Testament just takes more work because of that distance. But there's also a kind of theological distance with the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us about things that happened before the incarnation of the Son of God, right? So it just takes more thought for us to think about 
how do we incorporate this revelation, um, the revelation of the Hebrew Bible, into our lives as disciples under the New Covenant? Some things have changed. And so it, it's, it's more work theologically to reflect about how this is um, living in our lives. So as Taylor mentioned, we're not the first ones to be freaked out by the Old Testament, right? Marcion in the second century is the most extreme example. Um, he was excommunicated, but he founded his own church, which lasted until the 10th century in the Balkans. And that kind of influence, that is um, this kind of like, let's do away with the Old Testament. He also got rid of like half the New Testament because he didn't think it was as good as the rest. Um, that tends, that... It's, it's a natural drift in the church to kind of ignore some parts of scripture and focus on others. Whether or not we're like as official about it as Marcion. Mm -hmm. We're not always. Um, but we can, we can underemphasize the Old Testament. Um, so, the Old Testament is hard. Is it worth it? <laughs> like, is all this extra work worth it? Why do we need the Old Testament? And here, um, I realized last night that since I had six subpoints under my third point, <laughs> Maybe I should give you a little bit of a handout. <laughs> Taylor, gave me, Taylor gave me permission. Now, I ran out of, we ran out of ink halfway through, so you're probably going to need to share this. So our three questions this morning. Who's the Old Testament for? Why do we avoid it? Why does it freak us out a little bit? Why does it feel like it's not for us? And this third question, like, is it worth it? Why do we need, why do we need the Old Testament as followers of Jesus? Well, while we're passing these out, I want you to imagine that you um, walk into a movie theater with some friends to see a re-release of the original Star Wars movie. The original movie re-released. Episode 4. Okay? I hate calling it that. It's the first. Okay, so you sit down with your popcorn, you talk for a few minutes, finally the previews come on, and eventually it's time for the feature presentation. Okay? So, wonderful, John Williams the words are like scrolling through the galaxy and then suddenly the film cuts um, to the final scene with Luke Skywalker navigating his way through the Death Star right? Um, everything riding on him to destroy the evil emperor the evil empire and to save the rebellion right? and then you get this wonderful scene of celebration and an award ceremony with Princess Leia's awesome hairstyle um, <laughs> So, it, but imagine how disappointed you would be. You, you see the end of the movie, right? The rescue mission, the celebration, the good part, but not any of the conflict or the story that leads up to it. Now, if you've never seen the movie before, you'd probably be wondering, who is this young guy in this orange suit, right? What sort of strange maze is he flying through and why? What's this beeping trash can doing on the top of his <laughs> His airplane, but in any case, you would probably mad. You'd be feel, you would feel like you'd been ripped off, right? So imagine that you went to the manager to complain, and he explained that the theater had decided to just air the last scene because, after all, that was everybody's favorite scene. It was the most important part, really, and the rest of the movie was just like gearing up for that part. That's the rescue. That's the celebration. Um, everything else is just preparation for that. Well, you would have enough sense, I hope, to know that this is not right. Um, that the conclusion of the adventure doesn't make any sense if you don't know the story that's leading up to it. Well, I would venture to say that reading the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament is a little bit like that. You're coming in at the final rescue scene without knowing any of the problems or the characters that kind of led up to this crisis. It's an anemic picture of God's kingdom. 
we need the Old Testament because the New Testament doesn't make full sense without it. So, for example, last time I was preaching, we were looking at Isaiah 5. This is just one example. There are thousands, right? But um, we were looking at Isaiah 5, which talks about Israel as a vine, right? So Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I am the true vine, and anybody who's connected to me bears, will bear fruit, which makes very little sense if you don't know that there's been an 800-year conversation between God and the people of Israel through the prophets, about how Israel is a vine that can only bear sour grapes, okay? So after this 800-year conversation about their inability to produce any fruit, no matter what the Lord does to garden them and tend them, then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the true vine. If you're connected to me, you'll bear fruit. Like, that's a Star Wars final scene kind of moment, but it doesn't make much sense if you don't know about that conversation. So the New Testament, I would say, doesn't make full sense without the Old Testament. So the second reason we need the Old Testament is this. Unlike other world religions, the essence of the Christian faith, of the Christian gospel, is historical. Okay? Many other religious systems are built on philosophies, or on moral systems, or are built around some sort of pathway to holiness, or spiritual experiences, or answers to specific problems like the problem of human suffering, right? But the heart of Christianity, uniquely, is a story about what God has done. And that story doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins long before that, with the creation of this world, with the way that humans ruined this world, and with the beginning of God's plan to rescue this world. Both the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and the New Testament, point to this, to God's actions as the centerpiece of our faith. The gospel of Jesus, the apostle said, is his death and resurrection and his ascension for us, right? It's not just his teaching. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done. The core of our faith is the acts of God in history. So if that's true, which the Bible says it is, then we need to know our history to know our God. We need to know our history in, other words, in order to know who our God is. In order to know the good news of the gospel, we need to know what he's done. So we need the Old Testament, because that's where the story starts. Third reason of six, right? Third reason we need the Old Testament is this. One of, I'm convinced that one of our greatest needs in this generation in the church is to know, to understand the whole story of the Bible. Because it's one story. It's the unfolding story of God's gradual rescue of this of our race, human race. Um, it's not, I, to understand it as one story rather than as we often do, as like a kind of series of disconnected little vignettes, right? So we know about Noah's Ark, we know David and Goliath, we know Daniel and the lion's den, but we have no idea how these things all fit together, right? Um, I recently watched this really fascinating uh, interview with a guy named Phil Vischer. Does anybody know who Phil Vischer is? He's the creator of VeggieTales. Okay? Everybody know VeggieTales, this cartoon? Okay. Um, he, a couple of years ago, took a break and stopped making VeggieTales. He wanted to think about what he was doing, what they were doing. And this interview was after this kind of hiatus. And he concluded, I'm going to quote him here, he concluded, I became very concerned that kids needed more than just stories. 
that we were reducing the Bible to a collection of folk tales rather than a worldview, rather than a belief system that changes how you look at everything. That's something that, to be quite honest, we never taught in Veggie Tales. We taught Christian values. We didn't teach Christianity. Good heavens, he said. I need to start with a clean piece of paper and say, how do we explain not just Bible stories, but the story of the Bible? And he's now begun a new series um, called What's in the Bible, which he describes as the Muppets Go to Seminary. <laughs> <laughs> which I highly commend. It's actually wonderful. But it covers the whole scripture. <laughs> but I quote this interview for you because I think um, that his question is a really timely and relevant one, not just for children. How do we explain, as he says, not just Bible stories, but the story of the whole Bible? Because we, especially in this generation, need to know our lives as part of a bigger story, the story of God's work in the world. We need the Old Testament, in other words, in order to understand our place in the story, in the story of this planet, in the story of this world. Um, we need to get it. We need to get the whole story. All right. Fourthly, we need the Old Testament because Jesus needed the Old Testament. Jesus constantly relied on the Old Testament, on the Bible that he read, right? When he was facing temptation, right, he quoted Deuteronomy. When he was teaching people, he's constantly quoting and pulling all these threads out of the, especially the prophets. When he was explaining his mission, he did it by quoting the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament, in other words, because we're following a rabbi who immersed himself in the truth and the teaching and the mission of the Hebrew scriptures. It's how he explained who he was and what he was doing. It's where he found all of his language for what his mission was. So if Jesus needed the Old Testament to talk about who he was and what he was doing, it's a little bit iffy for us to think that we don't need it. Jesus needed the Old Testament. We also need the Old Testament because the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. Jesus didn't just speak about the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks about Jesus. Um, think about it. Remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he met two of his followers who were on their way home. They had given up, they were done, and they were on their way home to Emmaus. When Jesus encountered them, they didn't recognize him, and he asked them why they were so upset. And they explained to him... Basically, they were depressed about Jesus' death. They were discouraged. They were disillusioned. Um, they were disappointed. And he says to them this. This is in Luke 24. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. in all the scriptures. Later that same day, hours later, Jesus appeals to, appears to his disciples in the upper room. And he says to them, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in other words, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, and the Psalms, all the writings, would be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Think about this. After Jesus' resurrection, when he wants to help his disciples understand what's happened, what does he do? He teaches them the Old Testament. That's how he explains the mystery of his death and his resurrection. Like, he doesn't start from scratch. How does he explain what he just did? By teaching them the Old Testament. 
We see the same thing in the teaching of the apostles. So when Peter wants to explain the life of Jesus, he turns to the Old Testament. Acts 3, after Pentecost, the lame man has been healed. Peter stands up in the temple. He has everybody's attention. He's got this lame guy jumping right next to him, right? How does he explain what Jesus has done? Take, a, take some time this week to look at Acts 3. Look at Peter's sermon. He describes Jesus as the suffering servant that the prophets talked about. He says Jesus is the prophet, the prophet whose ministry Moses foretold. He says Jesus is the way that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham to bless the family of Abraham and through them to bless the world. Peter describes Jesus' identity by teaching the Old Testament. Paul does the same thing when he's on trial in front of King Agrippa. He says this, like, probably um, intentionally, like, edgy thing. But he says to King Agrippa, I'm saying, I'm quoting here, I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ would suffer. And he goes on to say what the prophets and Moses said. Um, so he's saying, I'm not adding anything. I'm not saying anything new. Like, that's kind of a huge statement. Right? He's saying, I'm not saying anything but what the prophet says. I'm saying just what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament is the way that the apostles explained what Jesus was about. If we want to know Jesus better, if we want to understand and be able to explain what he came to do, then we need to pay attention to the Old Testament. But finally, we need the Old Testament so we can understand the full truth of who God really is, who Jesus really is. And Taylor alluded to this before. But I'm sure we've all heard people say, and sometimes we think, honestly, that there's a big difference between the God of Israel that we see in the Old Testament and Jesus, the Word, become flesh. Often, I would say, we don't really have a hard time believing that Jesus is God. What we have a hard time with is understanding how is he this God? How is he Israel's God? How is he Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament? So the idea goes like this. The God we see in the Old Testament is a God of wrath, he's angry, he's grumpy, he's hungry, he's judgmental. Um, and when Jesus comes along, we suddenly see this God of love and mercy. Jesus just kind of seems nicer. <laughs> well, before we go on, I, I, I want to say a couple things um, in conclusion about this question. First of all, um, it's kind of a two-dimensional view of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll just start by saying this, and then we'll kind of get into the heart of it a little more. Um, because, of course, if you've read the whole Old Testament, you know that there's, like, so much mercy and forgiveness in there, it's not even funny, right? It's what set God apart from the other deities in the ancient Near East was his kindness and his patience. But conversely, there's a lot of talk about judgment in the New Testament. We like to skip over it because, um, you know, it's not as easy for us to think about, but Jesus talks about hell, just as one example, more than anybody else in the Bible. Anybody else in the Bible. There are like 20-some warnings about hell in the New Testament. 16 of them come out of Jesus' mouth. Um, my husband John likes to say, it's like Jesus looked around at his disciples and he was like, I'll take this one, guys. You know? <laughs> this is tricky. Let me, let me take this one. Um, there's a real thread of mercy in the Old Testament and a very real conversation about judgment in the New Testament. And I would say that this is because mercy and judgment are not disconnected. They're not two different things. The picture we get in the scriptures is that all preaching about judgment is for the purpose of bringing repentance. I would go so far as to say that all preaching in the Old Testament about judgment, in the whole of scripture about judgment, is for the purpose of repentance and rescue. The clearest place I think we see this is in the book of Jonah. Because God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh 
And do you remember what he says? Prophesy judgment against it because, because of the evil of the Ninevites, which has come up before me. So he says to, know, to Jonah, go prophesy judgment against the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. Why not? He doesn't like the Ninevites. Why wouldn't he jump at the chance to preach judgment against them? Wasn't this like his wildest dream? Well, we find out the answer to this question later in the story. After Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches against their evil, and they repent, and God spares them, Jonah says this. I'm quoting him here. Oh, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, I didn't want to preach judgment to them because I knew you were merciful. I knew you would forgive them. All preaching about judgment is for the purpose of bringing repentance and rescue. Jonah preaches judgment, and what they get is mercy. Okay? Warnings about judgment and offers of mercy are not disconnected. Those are not two different things, two different parts of God's character. They're always connected. But it is true that the general tone of the Old Testament and the overall emphasis of the New Testament feel different in some ways. That's just true. The Old Testament scriptures, and especially I would say the prophets, can sound really harsh to us. Sometimes God uses a stern tone of voice about his people's rebellion. To me, it sounds like the kind of voice that a parent uses when her child has run out into a busy road. Like, what's the most loving thing that a parent can do in that situation? Scream. Shout. Yell. Right? It's not to start a long, calm, measured, logical conversation about the dangers of running into the street. No. The most loving thing that a parent can do is to yell anything to get that child's attention and get them back on the sidewalk. This is not the time to worry about your tone of voice, right? It's time to get the kid's attention. Now, what I think what we hear in parts of the Old Testament is essentially God shouting to get his people's attention, to save them from real danger. Now, what do I mean by that? What kind of danger? Well, I just want to give you one example, just as a little glimpse, okay? One aspect, for example, of the idolatry that the Israelites were tempted to, especially of the Baal worship that they were tempted to, and took part in, um, was the practice of child sacrifice, right? There's an archaeological site in North Africa that's been discovered fairly recently um, in a community that practiced the same kind of Baal worship that God's people got into, okay? And at this archaeological site, um, they've uncovered what seems to be some kind of ritual burial ground. In it are 20,000 urns, each holding the cremated remains of at least one, sometimes a couple, infants and toddlers. 20,000 urns with possibly you know, 40,000 children. And the details of that site, the way that it's put together, suggests that these, these children were victims of child sacrifice. So can you see why when Israel starts practicing this religion, God got out his megaphone? Why he was willing to yell? There were lives at stake in every sense of the word. But by and large, God's people out in the middle of the street didn't listen to him. They didn't come back to the sidewalk. By and large. So what did God do next? Right? Kid in the middle of a busy street. Well, in Jesus' birth, and in his death and in his resurrection, we see God running into the street, 
pushing Amen. his child out of the way Amen. and getting hit by the car himself. We're told that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. He took the hit. He suffered the consequences of our stubbornness. It's the same loving parent doing a different thing, a new thing this time to rescue the same child, his children. The danger is the same. The motivation is the same. The character of the parent is the same. It's the tactic for rescue that's new. Okay, this is the same parent loving the same child in a new way. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's Yahweh, God the Son, come in the flesh to rescue us. He didn't just claim to be divine in some like abstract, theoretical, spiritual way. He specifically claimed to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, I am, in the flesh, the God who made the world, the God who remade the world, recovered it with water, and then re remade it at the flood, the God who promised to rescue the world after it was broken. The God who made himself known to one family, to the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who rescued their people from slavery in Egypt. The God who parted the Red Sea to save them. The God who spoke to Moses face to face. The God who came down to Mount Sinai and gave his people the law. This beautiful gift. I would say the Hebrew word is Torah, probably best translated the instruction. Right? It comes from to instruct or to teach. Um, and in that law, he gave this group of former slaves an identity. He gave them a culture. He gave them holidays, food traditions, distinctive dress, a unique calendar, a legal system. Like this ragtag group of slaves, he handed them a beautiful culture on a silver plate. Usually it takes, what, like hundreds, thousands of years for people to develop a culture. He gave them a culture that was going to reflect his character to the world. This beautiful gift. All of this was supposed to show the world who he was. Jesus claimed to be this God. I am the God of Israel. So the Bible doesn't present itself to us as like Yahweh versus Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament coming in the flesh, come to do something new. So as we look together at the book of Numbers this Lent, we're going to be looking at some really tricky passages. Taylor's just second fill up. We're going to look at, at passages about gender, at passages about war, at passages about punishment. We're going to be paying particular attention as we do this to this question. How do we see Jesus in these stories? How are these passages about Jesus? How do these stories show us both God's judgment and his mercy? Because those two go together. And what do these passages show us about God's character and about his plan of rescue for us, his overall story of rescue for this world and for us as his people? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness, your kindness in being a God who speaks to us. You didn't have to, A, do anything, or B, make sure it was written down so we would know about it. You just kindly, kindly make yourself known to us again and again in your actions and in your words and in the, um, the testimony of the scriptures to what you've done in history. Thank you for being that kind of God who didn't leave us to wander around seeking after you, but you came to find us and you made yourself known to us. And we just bless you humbly for that incredible gift. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn our attention to the Hebrew scriptures this Lent, that you would meet us in them that you would settle the 
questions in our hearts about your character, that we would um, come away with more confidence about your goodness, about your judgment and your mercy, and your rescue for us. So we ask that you would anoint um, this season for us, anoint our hearts, anoint the teaching, that we might um, be proud and grateful to call you our God, to look at who you are and just rejoice and be longing to you because of your good character. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.